So, picture this. It's 1993, and you've just gotten off of the first plane you've ever been on. You're 21 years old, and you and your family are starting a new life together in one of the most well-regarded and respected nations in the world. Pretty cool, right? Wrong. Welcome to this episode of Daughter. So, can you explain what it was like um, getting off of the plane and coming into Canada? Oh, that day is funny. My mom was 21 years old when she came to Canada. At the time, she was a mother of two who had just left the refugee camp she had called home for the past couple of years. She and the rest of my family arrived in Canada on February 3rd, which means that, well... I'll let her tell the story. They put us to the car. Then when we start to go to the reception house, I asked my husband, I said, look, that one is better white. I told him I don't know that, and he said I don't know it too. I said maybe the soap bubble. And then he said, it looks like sugar. <laughs> I said maybe it's a sugar. <laughs> and then he said, hmm, I'm going to ask them. And then when he asked that lady, that lady said, it's not a sugar, it's a, it's a snow. <laughs> he told, he translated me for that. And then I said, I want to, I want to touch it for my hand. And then he said, she said it's very cold. So it was pretty magical. But not for long. When my parents arrived in Calgary, all they had, for the most part, was the clothing they were wearing when they left Kenya. My mom, for example, had a flowy, traditional East African-style dress and dress shoes. After they parked the car and arrived at their new temporary home, I tried to walk to go inside the reception. She slipped and fell hard. And then I'm crying. I said, why I'm pulled on like this? Because I feel pain a lot. One of their escorts, also alarmed by my mother's fall, said, Oh my God, you broke anything, you go into an emergency. And then I say, no, I don't, I, I don't feel that something broke on my bone, in my bone. And then he said, my husband said, if you feel pain, you're going to hospital. I said, I don't want to go. What happened for this? And then they said, it's belagat. I'm going to touch it for my hand. And then I feel it. It looks like glass. <laughs> and it's very cold. All right. So for those of you who may not know, black ice is nature's practical joke. It's a thin sheet of ice that sits right on top of pavement. And it's not immediately or even easily seen by the human eye. And it can actually be really dangerous to cars and to Sudanese refugees who are ill-prepared for the treachery that winter brings. For my mom, the black ice which caused her so much physical pain was a personal offense. Once she got up and slightly recovered from the aches and pains of winter, she was escorted into the reception house and greeted with a meal, yet another personal attack. This time... 
on her stomach and digestive system. When the time coming to go to eat in the kitchen, they say this is the food. I see the bean. I know it in Africa. I uh, I saw the the meat. It's a meat in Africa. But the rest of food, I don't know them. <laughs> and then I said, this is a food? I, they, they say yes. I said, mm, I need walwal. <laughs> so walwal is a staple of a South Sudanese home. It's never really been easy for me to describe it, but basically it's like porridge made from cornmeal. It's hard to visualize, um, but it is my favorite smell in the world. And it's one of my favorite dishes as well. The best thing about going home to visit my mom is when she makes walwal and the sweet aroma fills the air. So I'm not surprised that my mom asked for the same thing in her new environment too. The perfect meal after a long plane ride would be walwal. And then they said, we don't have that in, in Canada. There is coin flour in here, we don't know how to cook it. Mm. And then I said, if you buy it, I come to cook it by myself. They said, okay. And another day, they don't bring it, they cook the same food. The different kind of food again. I said, where is walwal? And then they <laughs> said, we don't have a walwal. <laughs> they said, no walwal in here. We're going to buy it, but we go with you to in the store. And then another day, they don't. I, I so yeah, it kind of goes on like this said, for a couple of days. Then my mom finally had enough and decided she would just make some food for herself. I cook it, and then they see it in the morning in the kitchen. They saw it. They said, what is this? I said, it's Madida. Another East African dish. They don't know. <laughs> and they're going to wake up my husband. They said, your wife cooked uh, something in the kitchen. We don't know that. Can we taste them? Can we taste it? And then he said, okay, taste it. And then they, they, uh, the kitchen ladies, they taste that food. They taste Madida. And they say, oh, it's very nice food. You cook it every day in the reception hours in here. Maybe the rest of you. Come again, come come more in uh, in Canada. I said, okay, I'm going to cook it every day. Wake up in the morning, I'm going to cook it. In afternoon, they said, can you cook the the food? I said, it's a morning food. They said, okay. I said, you bring walwal. They never ended up bringing her walwal. As soon after her arrival at the temporary housing facility, they had found an apartment. And that's kind of when things went downhill. Well, even more downhill. One day I go to school with my uh, kid. My two older brothers, who were around four and two at the time. And then my husband picked up us. And so for the first time, my mother rode an elevator. But it was also the first time for my curious brother. And he didn't make it as fun an experience as one might think. And my son... The emergency. My brother pushed the emergency button in the elevator and uh, the elevator closed. The elevator doors closed on them. When it's closed, when when the emergency locked the the door and the alarm noise a lot in the building. Alarm started ringing. The door locked itself, and my mom frantically wondered, "We die all of us today." 
And then my husband said, no, <laughs> we don't, I, I think we don't go, they, go, they come to have, uh, to have us. I said, why they don't come? Because it takes time to call the, the somebody to open the, the door. And then I hold my, my kid, I sit down and I'm crying. My kid start crying. I said, we're going to see God today. <laughs> it's the end of the world for us. And I talked to my kid, they start to cry. We die today, I said, yeah. But the good thing, we are all of us in here in this Alabama. And then when we die, nobody separate from the world. We just go together. And then my husband laughing. He said, you don't going to die. They come to us, us. I said, we're going to die. Why they not come? We spend 15 minutes in, inside. So it's noisy because there are alarm bells ringing. My mother is screaming at the top of her lungs and trying to pry open the doors with her tired fingers. My dad is trying to explain that everything is going to be all right. And my two little brothers are shedding an endless supply of tears. Then finally, the doors open. They come, when they came and they opened the door, they start laughing and they say so too. I said, okay. I want to go back to my country. This is bad country. Why, 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 why I'm almost died today in this? They said, it's not a bad country. You're just going to walk for the stair when you, going to, when you don't <laughs> like Alberta. So my mom and I, we're laughing now. But the subtext here is that she's telling me this story almost two decades after it happened. When all of this was really happening in 1993, Remember, she was just 21 years old. She had just been living in a refugee camp. She escaped a war zone, a prison, and a famine. She had narrowly escaped a violent death several times. That woman, screaming in the elevator, was traumatized. Not ridiculous or overreactionary or whatever. She was traumatized. That trauma, much like the snow, the cold, the food, and the elevators, was another thing she would just have to get over, and quick, because no other options were available to her. I have one friend, she came from Ethiopia, her husband brought her in here. She's a very young girl. And her husband told me in his school, can you hold my, uh, my wife and always, because she is scared sometimes. She liked me so much, and then we walk together, we buy food together, and we sit together in, in class. That girl, she's very scared for Alberta too. She said, I don't want, I don't want to go in this, and I, <laughs> I, I told her, come in. And I hold her hand, <laughs> and then we go inside. She just hold me and she start crying. I said, okay, we don't come for this again. All the time we walk, we walk to go to, to seventh floor <laughs> every day. And then her husband come and her husband tell her, please, that is good to walk. You don't walk like this always. That time I am um, start pregnant. It's very hard for me to go up there. Mm -hmm. It's the same. My mom at the time, was several months pregnant with me when she realized that her friend 
was also traumatized like she once was and not ready to face the new realities of life in Canada. So every day, feet swollen from the burden of pregnancy and the calling of friendship, she walked up seven flights of stairs. Throat sore from the screams in an elevator and a war zone alike, she carried on in adjusting to her new home. Body aching from the hard nights at the prison and the painful falls on an icy pavement, she continued to brace the elements. And with all of that in context, I'm realizing now that her body is a map of her trauma. And as her albeit self-appointed cartographer, I'm concerned about what the cost of war means for her future, for our future. How will her prison experience shape our lives in the years to come? How has her marriage at such a young age defined her health as we see it today? These thoughts and my speculated answers come at me at work, when I'm on the bus, before I go to sleep at night, every single time she goes to the doctor. I always wonder, how will this trauma continue to define her life story? How can I fix it? Now, I'm not an experienced cartographer, and I don't know how to think about what our future means and what our past has meant as a result of this trauma and as we push through these questions together. But what I have learned is that her body is not only a map of her trauma, but also a map of her unmatched resilience. The wrinkles that appear at the side of her eyes when she laughs are a roadmap of her remarkable ability to find the good in life even through all the bad she's experienced. Her hips are tired reminders of the children she's had to rear, the burden that that type of love has deigned upon her. Her hands, a display of a culture and years of tradition and circumstance that taught her how to cook, how to hold, how to honor the traditions of her ancestors while learning to understand the changes that needed to be made. Reading the scars, bumps, and bruises of her weathered soul is a difficult and quite honestly painful privilege that I've been tasked with. But it's a privilege I wear proudly because one day, I'm going to have children. And they're going to read the wrinkles of my eyes, the scars on my hands, the pain my body bears. And they're going to see that I did everything I could to stop those same traumas passed down to me as a result of a world of systemic failures from defining their lives and their maps. They are not going to let trauma define them. In fact, they're going to see, just like I do now, how far we've come and how strong they're destined to be. Thank you for listening to this episode of Daughter. If you are interested in supporting the show, I encourage you to contribute to my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash daughterpodcast, where you can donate $1, $2, the cost of a coffee, the cost of a burger or poutine or whatever you want. Your financial contribution goes toward music licensing, website, domain fees, and other things that do make this endeavor a little bit pricey. So if you like what you've heard, this is the best way for you to support the sharing of this story. 
If you can't contribute financially, I understand. Perhaps in that case, you would consider writing a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. The music you heard in the show is linked in the description of this episode. And if you liked the artwork you saw on Instagram, you can thank Marissa Gladys, a Toronto-based artist who has just as big a crush on Peter Kaminsky as I do. You can find her on Instagram at ByMarissa. Until next time, thank you for listening.